following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. morning to open up to the 10th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. The 10th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. It's such an encouragement to me to come up here each week hearing throughout the week how excited some of you are, many of you are, about Matthew. And that's, uh, that's so precious to hear as a, as, a, as a pastor to know that Something's working up here. It's working out. Matthew chapter 10. I'd like to begin by reading this morning the entire chapter, and then we'll seek to unpack and apply it to our lives in order that the simple would be made wise that the weak would be made strong, the broken would be made whole, that the dead would be made alive, that the defiled would be made pure. We're going to read, unpack, and apply in order that the saints would be made competent, that the childish would be made mature, that the unstable would be secure, that the calloused would be made soft, that the indifferent would be made zealous and that the hopeless would be made hopeful. Ultimately, for the glory of the triune God to whom all praise is due and for the good of the blood-bought church for whom the Son was given and for the gathering of the chosen race who have yet to receive the Savior's grace. I would remind you this morning, as the Apostle Paul stated in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, every word of God is given to us in order to teach us what is right, that's teaching, in order to teach us what is not right, that's reproof, to teach us how to get right, that's correction, and to teach us how to stay right, that's training. And so with that in mind, I direct your attention to Matthew chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. 
with Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, Proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Genesis chapter 49, just before the death of Jacob, also known as Israel, he called his 12 sons to him and he said to them, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And then with the exception of one, Israel makes his way from the oldest to the youngest, pronouncing a blessing on each of his sons, a blessing that, encompassing their past actions, explains how their descendants will fare in the future. These 12 sons and their descendants would eventually be known as the 12 tribes of Israel, God's old covenant people. Well, as time goes by and Israel is established as a nation, Moses, in Numbers chapter 1, selects 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, for one purpose, leading the nation of Israel, God's earthly kingdom, into war. Well, in shockingly similar fashion, when we turn to Matthew chapter 10, we see the true Israel. We see the new Moses gathering to himself 12 of his disciples, men on whom he has already, presumably, pronounced his blessing in the Beatitudes, preparing them in order to send them into war, into battle. And this battle is not a battle of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. He's sending them into Satan's territory. Satan's ground. That's what he's doing. This morning, our outline is very simple. Two points with some sub points beneath them. We see that in verses 1 through 15, the king sends his apostles as shepherds to lost sheep. And then in verses 16 through 42, the king sends his apostles as sheep among fierce wolves, sheep among fierce wolves. And so as we move our way into the text this morning, 
Let's consider first and foremost the king's sending of his apostles as shepherds to lost sheep. And in verses 1 to 4, we see first that they are authorized by the king. They're authorized by the king. Jesus gathers to himself these 12 men. You remember that Jesus had more than 12 disciples. He had crowds gathering to him again and again, repeatedly, crowds just growing. Gets to the point where he assembles 12 men, commissions them, authorizes them. Remember, the past two chapters, we have been impressed and uh, fascinated with the authority of the king. Again and again, he has authority over demons, authority over disaster, authority over death, authority over disciples. And now he is going to transfer or or rather confer this authority to his disciples. He's going to commission them as apostles, sent ones. This is fascinating because this is... The number 12 here implies that Jesus' disciples represent the true people of God and they form a restored Israel. That's what he's doing here. He gives them authority, notice, over unclean spirits. Interesting wording to describe the demonic realm. They are spirits in the unseen realm. They are unclean. Their their existence revolves around that which God despises, that which God abhors. And so when we see the uncleanness of this world, we can ultimately attribute it to the demonic powers at work in this world. They're unclean. They're filthy. They're rotten. They are depraved. But he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out of people. He gives them authority to heal, notice, every disease and every affliction. There was not anything that they would come across physically that they could not overcome. This is extraordinary authority that he's conferring to his disciples. It's interesting because in Numbers chapter 1, when Moses selects these 12 men to lead Israel into war, The wording is very, very similar to verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these, and he names them. Simon, who is called Peter. He's named first because he is the leader amongst the 12. He is the one who would be the pillar of the 12. Peter, fisherman, the the man who was called back in Matthew chapter 4 with his brother, Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, he groups the brothers together. James and John, the sons of thunder. You can read a little bit more about these guys in some of the other gospels. James and John were quick to want to call down fire from heaven on unrepentant listeners. And Jesus gives them the nickname, sons of thunder. You have Philip and Bartholomew, you have Thomas, and it's fascinating that Matthew attaches what he was. Matthew, the tax collector. Again, we saw last week in in Matthew chapter 9 that according to Jewish law, you know, the the, the law of the day, uh, tax collectors were so filthy and dishonest and devious that they were not allowed to 
to, 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 to testify, to be a witness in any kind of trials. And yet God in his providence, God in his transforming power takes this tax collector, this formerly dishonest man and makes him the very first witness we come across when we turn to the New Testament. Isn't that fascinating? Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And then you have Simon, the zealot. Zealots were devoted men who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. It's interesting that the two guys here who are given a title of what they were are are the exact opposite of one another. Here you have Simon who is zealous for God and the kingdom and the Messiah's rule and reign. And then you had what he would consider to be a traitor to the Jewish people, Matthew, the tax collector. And here they are in the same group. It just shows you that God calls his people from all corners of the earth, different backgrounds, and he unites them in his grace and by his gospel. And they work as one. They labor as one. It's glorious. And then you have Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Most of the times you find Judas's name is always attached, always attached is that phrase, who betrayed him, who betrayed him. I mean, this man went down in history as the one who betrayed the son of God. This should humble us because Jesus knew from the very beginning who was the devil among them, who the, who the demon among them was. And yet he still poured out, he still taught, and he still poured into these disciples Presumably Judas as well. The fullness of his grace, the fullness of his patience, the fullness of his long-suffering, knowing fully well what Judas would do and what Judas would become. And that should encourage us as a church to pour into people, regardless of where they're at, regardless of what you think they are or what you think they might become, to pour into them and to not expect anything back, to pour in as our Lord did with Judas And so these guys are authorized by the king, the very power and authority over all these realms, death and disciples and and, and disease. Jesus now gives that authority over to these men and he sends them out. As we see in verse five, in verses one to four, they are authorized by the king. And then verses five through 15, they are instructed by the king. We see in verse five, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is not to say that the Gentiles would be excluded completely. No, initially, this was the mission. The mission was to seek out, as Ezekiel 34 prophesied, when the new David came in, when the shepherd king came in, he would restore and seek out the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. And so, in light of that prophecy, Jesus sends them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They had been lost for a long time. Even in Isaiah's day, 700 years before this, Isaiah confessed, 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And yet the good news is that the Lord laid on the servant, the suffering servant, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. They are the lost sheep. Those who have strayed, he sends them to them. And what they are to do is spelled out in verse 7. And proclaim as you go. This is a, a, a word that was used uh, to describe a, a herald that would precede uh, the coming of a king. He would go and prepare the people to receive their king, to welcome their king. They are to proclaim aloud, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's one thing we are seeing repeatedly, right, in Matthew. That's why I've entitled this series, Matthew, King and Kingdom. It's all about the king, and it's all about the kingdom. And it's interesting because Matthew, the way he teaches us regarding the kingdom is fascinating because we see the, the kingdom of heaven arriving in successive stages, right? We were taught in chapter 6 to pray the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what's the first thing? Your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. And then Matthew shows us how the kingdom comes, right? It, becomes, it comes first with the arrival of the king, Jesus. And then it continues with the, king, with the king's binding of Satan and, and the release of his captives in chapter 12, verse 28. And then the resurrection of Jesus. He receives all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 19. And then he extends this kingdom to the end of this present age, Matthew 28, 20. And then the day will come when the king will renew all things. So we see the kingdom successively coming in these stages. The kingdom is still coming. Every time you share the gospel with someone and they receive the gospel, the kingdom spreads. The rule of Christ, the reign of Christ spreads. And eventually, God will rid this earth of all who despise his authority and his kingdom and his glory and the only thing left in this world will be a people who love and treasure his reign and rule. And the kingdom of God will be the only kingdom left on this earth. And we know that that will happen in that final day. It's interesting that uh, in Ezekiel 34, one of the indictments against Israel's former shepherds is that they would not, were not able to heal the sick. And Jesus commissions these under-shepherds to go and heal the sick. I mean, this is exactly what Ezekiel 34 is talking about. They had not healed the sick. They did not bandage the injured. They did not bring back the strays. They did not seek the lost, Ezekiel 34.4. And now, as an extension of his own ministry, of this, this, this Davidic shepherd Jesus... He commissions these disciples. He authorizes them to go and heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is our commission as well. I challenged you a few weeks ago. When you share the gospel, how much of the gospel, how much of the content centers around the kingdom of God? The gospel is not just about how to get you out of hell and into heaven. The gospel is about a kingdom that has come and that is coming and that will take over, a, a kingdom that will 
stand in the end, a kingdom that will dominate, a kingdom that will shine forever for the glory of the triune God. The gospel is about the coming of the kingdom. Gospel meaning good news. This is good news. The kingdoms of this world have done nothing but wreak havoc and cause disaster and bring about ruin and devastation and misery. Well, the good news is that a kingdom is coming that will bring everlasting joy and peace and bliss and blessedness to all of its citizens. And that's good news. That's why it's called gospel. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. The rabbis of the day were known to charge you anytime they taught you. He says, freely you have received, and now you go out and freely give, freely pour out. Nothing you have is your own. It's all my authority flowing through you. The authority to proclaim, the authority to heal, the authority to raise the dead, all of that is my authority. It's free to you. Now go freely pour it out. That should liberate us, right? To know that everything we are given as Christians in the Great Commission is not our own. If it was our own, we might be tempted to charge. It's our own time. Well, it's not our own time. We are stewards of God's time. Freely pour out to people. Freely give. It's, it's, it's a joy to give when you realize that what you have to give is not your own. And it's endless. It's inexhaustible. Right? Sometimes we say, well, I've given you all I have to give. We can never, ever, ever say that regarding the Great Commission. I, I, I'm giving you this today, but oh man, the treasures that I have in my Christ are so glorious that I can give you this today and then come back tomorrow and I'll give you so much more. And throughout all eternity, we will bask in the, 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 the ways in which God has been bountiful to us. There is always more to give, always more to pour out. The truth of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God is so inexhaustible. The, 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 the pockets of the gospel herald are so deep that we can never reach the bottoms, right? We can bring out more and more treasures, just like Matthew's doing in this gospel. He's this scribe that is bringing out treasures, old and new. He says in verse 9, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to need. The laborer deserves his food. Jesus understood that if you're working for him, wherever you go, you deserve to eat. And his providence is such, and his sovereignty is such, that they will be provided for. They will be provided for. Provision will be there. He says, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. In other words, that doesn't mean necessarily, it doesn't mean that, you know, find out if they're deserving of eternal life. Because the truth is, no one's deserving of eternal life. Worthy in the sense of, they're willing to accept your message. They're willing to listen to your gospel of the kingdom Find out whoever's willing to, to listen and, and hear you and stay there with that person until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, they're willing to listen to the gospel, then let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, meaning if they are pigs that he warned about in the Sermon on the Mount, that you're not to cast your pearls before. Don't cast your pearls there. Don't waste your time. 
Notice the instruction in the very next verse. If anyone will not receive you, if the house is not worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And anyone, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now this is, this would have been a shocker to the disciples because this was a practice that had been adopted by the Jews. Anytime they would leave a Gentile town, they would shake off the dust of their feet because they believed that their feet were defiled by walking in Gentile territory. And as they would leave, they would, they would leave that town and they would shake off the dust of their feet. They would get their sandals, and, like many of you do, and, and, and shake off the dust as a, as a, as a, as a, as a sign of, of, of I'm, I'm letting go of the defilement of these, these Gentile towns. And now Jesus sends these people not to Gentile towns. He sends them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and says, if they are unwilling to listen to you, treat them as you would treat the Gentiles. That's because Jesus has, as we've seen already, he is the true Israel and he is restoring the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, they, and, and together they, they constitute a, a restored Israel so much so that Jews who want to say, well, we're Abraham's children. We're David's, we're, we're, we're descendants of, of Abraham. Are considered Gentiles now because of their rejection of the Messiah King. Shake off the dust of your feet. Now, we're, all, we're always tempted, aren't we, to want to go from text to us, right? But we know that these apostles are unique. We are given authority to preach. We are given authority. We're, we're not necessarily given authority to go and heal every kind of disease and every kind of affliction and raise the dead. We have the authority to, as ambassadors, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The authority of the gospel backs us as we go out. And what we can take from this is that, yes, God will provide for us as we go out on mission, as we go out with the, the kingdom mindset of, of expanding the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, right? God will provide for us. We don't have to worry about certain provisions. And that's, 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 that's good news over and over again. I mean, even in celebrated in the Psalms, David said, I've lived many years and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the righteous begging for bread. God has always provided for his people. And he will provide for you as a believer, especially as you focus and seek first the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He will provide for you. You will not be in lack. You will not be in want. He will provide for you. And we're to be mindful of those people that are willing to give us a listening ear, an open heart. I mean, when you find that, dive in, Christian. Dive in, believer. Because that's a sign that God may be working in this individual. When you have an open door, don't ignore the open door. Run through it. Dig into the gospel pockets and, and bring out gospel treasures to them. And if there's people who just don't want any, anything you have to offer, anything you have to say, move on. Move on. He says in verse 15, as we conclude this section where he sends them as shepherds to lost sheep, 
Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He is talking about Jewish towns. More bearable. It's still going to be dreadful for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's still going to be horrific for Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for anyone who rejects the gospel. All throughout the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah are pointed to as the epitome of evil and wickedness. This place of old homosexuality and sexual sin, just flagrant in, in, in their sin, proud, flaunting it. And God comes in wrath and pours down fire from heaven on these cities and they are destroyed, completely destroyed. And Jesus points to this and says, it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for anyone who rejects the king, anyone who rejects the gospel. It is more heinous in God's eyes for you to hear the message of Christ and him crucified and to say, eh, not for me, or eh, later. That is heinous in the eyes of God, so wicked in the eyes of God, you comfort yourself by looking at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, those are real sinners over there. Do you realize it's going to be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for you, any one of you in this room hearing my voice, to neglect this great salvation that is freely offered to you through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do not harden your hearts against his voice. Do not harden your hearts against his call. Do not harden your hearts against this gospel. This is your very... Joy, this is your eternal happiness and bliss given to you at no cost to you at all. It's free. The price has been paid. Almighty vengeance has been satisfied on that cross. And it's yours if you want it. Yours if you'll take it. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for any of you who reject the king and prefer sin in place of the king. So we see him sending his apostles as shepherds to lost sheep in verses 1 through 15, and now the imagery shifts a little bit to them being sent out as sheep among fierce wolves. Sheep among fierce wolves. Jesus came and he sought to gather the lost sheep of the flock of Israel. And as we go forth from this place today, we can trust God to provide for us as we have that same mindset. He will provide for us. He will protect us. All these assurances are a demonstration of God's compassion for people. But it's interesting that all of this compassion is tempered by his own justice, right? concludes the whole section by saying it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town who has rejected the good news. I mean, that's kind of like an oxymoron, right? Rejecting good news? 
rejecting good news. This morning, if you're a, not in Christ this morning, do you realize what you're rejecting? It's not just rejecting church. You're not just rejecting the instruction of your parents. You're not just rejecting the, the sermon. You're rejecting good news. Good news that is for your eternal joy and peace in the presence of Almighty God. You're rejecting that. That's why the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus concludes everything, he likens sin to foolishness of a foolish man who builds his house on sand. Sin is stupid. Sin is folly. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. That's what the Proverbs tell us again and again, that sin is stupidity. Impurity is stupidity. It's rejecting what's good and rational and what makes the most sense for, 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 for a temporary pleasure that will always and only bring shame and misery and uh, compounding of guilt in the person's heart. Well, Jesus then turns and he sends his apostles as sheep among fierce wolves. Shepherds to lost sheep, and now they're sheep among fierce wolves. Look at verses 15 through 25 as we consider the first thing, the first of four things that he calls them to be mindful of. First and foremost, they are to be mindful of the world that is hostile. The world that is hostile, verses 15 through 25. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So the commission that sounds exciting, we have authority to, to, to heal and cast out demons and raise the dead. Jesus then brings them back down to earth, as it were, in case any of them have puffed up. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep, helpless creatures in the midst of ferocious animals that will devour you and seek to devour you. He says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He calls them to two things here, and he calls us to two things here. As we are sent out as heralds of the kingdom, representatives, ambassadors of the king, he calls us to two things, wisdom and innocence. Better word for innocence there in the Greek is purity. Purity. That's what he's calling them to. Doves were known for their white color in that day, harmless as doves, innocent as doves. The word is literally unmixed in the Greek, unmixed. And when it's used figuratively, it means to be pure, it means to be uncontaminated. It means to be undefiled. A dove probably served as a symbol of purity because of its whiteness. Jesus calls them and he calls us today to exercise wisdom and purity. I mean, are those two things that you were seeking after today? Lord, here I am, a redeemed saint, a redeemed vessel the gospel I have is not my own. The truth I have is not my own. The words I have to give are not my own. 
Oh, give me wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to wield knowledge. If knowledge is likened to a sword, wisdom is knowing how to wield that sword, how to use that sword. A lot of people have knowledge. And and knowledge can easily, as Paul says, can puff up. Not a lot of people have wisdom. It's good that you read the Bible. It's good that you read sound doctrine and listen to good sermons and listen to, to, to sound theology and just grow and excel. I mean, I would encourage you to do everything you can to grow and excel and exceed the norm when it comes to sound doctrine and theology. And I encourage you to read good books and listen to good, to good sermons and listen to good podcasts and download audiobooks and listen and take in. But friend, at the end of the day, what you need more than knowledge is wisdom and how to apply that truth, how to apply that in your own thinking throughout the day, in the conversation you have with your coworker, in your time with your children, in your time with your spouse, how do you apply that knowledge? Because sometimes the division between knowledge and wisdom is light years, light years in our lives. We have all this knowledge and yet no wisdom in how to apply it, no wisdom in how to, how to use it and bring it into, into light. One way to start, one place to start is by immersing yourselves in the book of Proverbs where we see how to walk in wisdom, how to walk wisely, how the simple are made wise, how the foolish are given understanding and made wise. A proverb a day keeps the folly away. (laughs) Remerse yourself in the Proverbs Learn how to wield the truth that has been given to you. Be wise as serpents. Right? We, we saw back in chapter 3 where John the Baptist is baptizing and he sees the Pharisees and the religious leaders coming out and he likens them to serpents who, who know how to flee from the wrath to come. He was referring to a, a common brush fire and how whenever there was a brush fire, serpents knew, get out, run. Or not run, I mean, slide, <laughs> you know. Slide. Uh, serpents don't run. They, they know how to flee. There's a wisdom that, that serpents have, that snakes have, that Jesus calls his disciples to. Be wise, but be pure. Be pure. Jesus calls us to be pure, unmixed, in our minds, in our hearts. Oh, Lord, in this day and age, how can I, as a young man, keep my way pure? Oh, he answered that hundreds of years ago. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It is so encouraging. Well, I will say, parenting is so discouraging because of the onslaught of attacks that we know our children will face. I mean, the stuff I was exposed to as, as, as a young boy compared to what children are being exposed to today and the new ways, as Romans chapter 1 talks about, of man inventing new ways of sinning, inventors of evil. It's just evolving and it's growing. And as parents, we look on this situation and we're like... <laughs> 
how do, I, how do, how do they stand a chance? I, I can't imagine what they're going to be exposed to. I can't imagine the things they're going to have to see and deal with. That's the discouraging part. The encouraging part is this. None of that, none of this evil has ever taken God by surprise. He knew that when he gave us his word and when the canon was uh, topped off, if you will, when the canon was complete and we had the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, he knew what would happen in the age of AI and in the age of, 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 of technology and all the ways of sinning. And he knew all the ways in which man would invent new ways of spitting in his face and new ways of despising his glory and trading his glory. And he, he, he knew that. And he knew that what he has given us in his word would be sufficient to keep his people pure, to keep his people on the narrow path. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. That was true 200 years ago. That was true 500 years ago. And if the Lord tarries, that will be true 100 years from now. Now, I hope he comes back soon. I do. I, I, Lord Jesus, come. But if he tarries, your children and your grandchildren will have enough in this holy, sacred book to keep their minds fixated and fascinated on the all-satisfying, infinitely satisfying glory of the Son of God. And that is good news. He knew that, yes, new ways of sinning will come, but he knew that his word is able to keep us on the straight and narrow. Isn't that good? Good news? So know that what we have here is everything we need. Right here. Everything we need for life and godliness through the exceedingly great and precious promises that he has given to us. Everything you need, Christian, right here. Right here. Or right there. In, in, in your lap. Or in your possession. If you don't have one, let me know. I'll get you one gladly. He reminds us of the world that is hostile. He says, furthermore, not just calling them to, wiz- to be wise and to be pure, but he calls them in verse 17. He says, beware of men, men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. It's my fault, he says. It's my authority, my gospel, my message. My commission, it's because of me to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You will be put on trial. But as you stand trial, he says, I want you to bear witness about me. I want you to tell them why you're here. It was glorious the other day. Um, I was able to witness a, someone being sworn in to a certain branch of the government. And this individual stood before a lot of other government personnel. And... Uh, you know, this formal ceremony and, and um, uh, the, the, the military person says, all right, well, give it over to you, sir. What do you have to say? And the man says, first thing I want to say is just I want to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, I, got, I, I, I found him afterwards and I said, I appreciate you giving glory to whom glory is due. You know, and that's still happening and that's a good thing. He says, you will bear witness for my sake. 
as you were dragged before governors, dragged before kings for my sake. And when they deliver you over, verse 19, do not be anxious how you were to speak. You don't need to have a sermon prepared. You don't have to have a, 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 a lecture prepared. You don't have to be like uh, Jonathan Edwards who, I mean, he, you read about him and he had like, you know, he'd have little pieces of paper and he would write things that the Lord's showing him and he would like get needles and like pin them into his jacket and his coat and he'd have them with him always. And it was, I mean, and now we benefit from that when we, we, we have like the works of Jonathan Edwards and the, the things that the Lord showed him out in, in his, on his horse rides. And, and he says, but here in this context, you don't have to have anything ready. You need to be wise. You need to focus on purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You just focus on purity. Focus on being wise in, in the knowledge of God. And when you stand before them, notice what he says. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't toss and turn of how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's going to be given to you. Sometimes we hear and we read of martyrs and Christians who are persecuted either in time past or in places afar off. And we, it always comes down to the point, right? Well, man, if I'm ever in that situation, I don't know that I could stand bold for Christ. I don't know that I could I'd be willing to uh, uphold my convictions, especially if they're threatening to kill me or my family or what. I mean, you name the scenario. And the good news is that in that very moment, the Lord will uphold us. The Lord will give us what we need. You don't have to, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't know what I would do if, I, if, I'm, if we're to that point where the government busts in and, and, and says, deny Christ or die, or I kill, start killing your family. There's anxiety there. There's heaviness there. But the comfort there is that the Lord will give us what we need in that very hour. And he clarifies a little bit more. Notice the next verse. He says, verse 20, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father. That's the only phrase in the Gospel of Matthew where we find the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. In other words, as your Father on earth is turning you in, your Father in heaven will be speaking on your behalf. As you're deserted and abandoned and reported by your earthly Father, your Father in heaven will show up at the exact time you need him to in order to speak on your behalf. What a comfort. What a comfort. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. We're talking about unbelieving fathers turning in believers. You're you're talking about unbelieving children pointing to a a, a father who's clinging to Christ and it's illegal. He says, that's going to happen. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated, verse 22, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is calling them to endurance. What's the end here? A lot of commentators are all on different pages with regarding, well, endure to the end. What is that? It's to the end when there's no longer any kind of persecution in your life. And the call is to you, for you to endure to the end. 
for you to hold on to Christ to the end. But this is not just a, an intimidating passage. This is a comforting passage. Because when we talk about endurance and perseverance, we look to ourselves and we say, I don't know that I would have what it takes to endure to the end. Well, he's already told you that the spirit of your father will be speaking on your behalf. The spirit of your father is present with you, causing you, helping you, enabling you to endure to the end. The perseverance of the saints is rooted in the preservation of the Savior. The preservation of the Savior. He says, verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Don't, don't waste your time. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now this has puzzled a lot of people as well. Because... Obviously, he's been gone for, from an earthly perspective, physical perspective, 2,000 years. And, and so some have identified really four kind of possibilities with what this means. Number one, there's some who say that Jesus' visit to the towns of Israel, while the disciples were engaged in his initial itinerant ministry, that, that, um, that Jesus would... Um, he's basically saying, you know, you're not going to go through all the towns before I come to those towns. Well, that's not what he, I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, some talk about his, his resurrection. Uh, some say the destruction of Jerusalem. Before he comes in 70 AD to destroy Jerusalem, you're not going to make your way through all the towns. I think what this is referring to, though, is that Daniel 7 vision again. As Matthew has been calling our attention to again, and again, where you know, readers often, often assume that the coming of the Son of Man here refers to the coming of the Son of Man from heaven to earth. Whereas Daniel 7 describes a scene in heaven in which the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and receives his authority to rule. And we know that that happens in his resurrection, where all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him as the triumphant, conquering king, son of man, son of God. So what he's saying here, I think what he's saying here, is you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before I am resurrected in all my glory and I am presented before my father and given all dominion as the son of man to rule and reign over my kingdom and over absolutely everything. He says, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And he says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, if he's treated and he's accused of, as we saw last week, casting out demons by the prince of demons... If he's, if he's doing these things, they say, by demonic powers, he says, you can expect the same treatment for his disciples. You can expect the same treatment, same treatment for his people. I mean, sometimes we're taken aback by the way we are either rejected or neglected because of our gospel attempts, our gospel uh, 
attempts to bring the gospel to people, we should never, ever be shocked or surprised about that. I mean, we should be expected. I mean, what should shock us is when someone's willing to listen. What should shock us is when someone's willing to give you an open ear and an open heart. That's why I said earlier, run through that door. If the door's open a little bit, swing it open. Run in there. We're not above him. We're going to be treated just like him if we're walking like him and walking with him. So first and foremost, as the king sends his apostles out as sheep among fierce wolves, they are to be mindful of the world that is hostile. And we are too. We are to be mindful of the world that is hostile. If anyone seeks to live a godly life, Paul said, you will suffer persecution. You will suffer persecution. And in the midst of all of that, you need to focus on two things. Wisdom and purity. David prayed, may my integrity uphold me. May I be upheld and may I be sustained by my own integrity. And we know that that integrity comes from the work of the Spirit in our lives. Secondly, they're not just to be mindful of the world that is hostile. They're to be mindful of the Father who is sovereign. The Father who is sovereign, verses 25 through 23. In verse 17, he says, beware of men. And now notice verse 25. So have no fear of them. Beware of them, but have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He's calling them to be upfront and honest and open about everything that he has revealed to them. Don't worry about them. Don't fear them. Don't be afraid of them. Yeah, they're going to drag you and flog you. A, a, a typical flogging on the part of the Jews was not intended to kill you. It was intended to inflict the worst possible pain just, just short of death. And we see that happening in the book of Acts, don't we? We see these very men being flogged and yet emerging out of that intense, agonizing pain, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. And then he, now he says, have no fear of them. They'll flog you. They'll betray you. They'll do all these things. But the one thing Jesus says is don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. That is, that, that is that's life for us this morning. Don't be afraid of men. Don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of people. God is telling us that this morning. Do not be afraid of the world. Do not be afraid of what man will do. Man can threaten, man can do, but as we're going to see by the end of the passage, nothing can happen apart from the sovereignty of God. And that's what he shows us here. In verses 15 and 25, be mindful of the world that is hostile, but now he shows us to be mindful of the Father who is sovereign. The Father who is sovereign. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's all they can do. The worst that man can do is kill the tent. The worst that man can do is inflict pain and even death upon the temporary tent that will one day be laid to the dust and eventually be resurrected in new glory, in glorification. That's the worst that man can do, is kill the body. 
but cannot do anything to the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is calling us not to fear men, but to fear God. Fear him, rather, who can take both your body and your soul and destroy both in hell. And we know that annihilationism isn't a thing, right? We know that the Bible uses language like destruction and destroyed when it talks about the wicked, but we know that that has to fit within the context of everlasting torment and everlasting pain and misery and, and, and wrath. God is able to take the body and the soul as he will at the end of the age and unite them in hell and inflict everlasting pain and punishment upon those who despise his son and despise his glory and who trade his truth for lies and exchange his glory for idols. God will do that. Jesus says, this is the one you ought to be thinking about. Yes, they're going to drag you before governors and kings and you're going to be flogged and you're going to be delivered over to courts and have to bear witness, but ultimately what you need to fear is God. The fear of God is the cure for the fear of man. Fearing God is the cure to struggling with the fear of man. He says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And and this this is fascinating. Look at the next verse, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Jesus looks at the most insignificant creature on the earth. I mean, sparrows are just everywhere, especially in that day. The point is that there, there, there's no value there. They're, they're sold for a penny. And not one of them, notice, will fall to the ground apart from your father. Jesus looks at, and he points his disciples to one of the most insignificant creatures on this planet and says, look at their value. Aren't two, can't you get two for a penny? And he says, yet not one. Not over in East Asia, not over in Canada, not in California, not down in southern New Mexico. No, no one of these birds can fall to the ground apart from the Father. Your Father, he says. He's not just talking about the knowledge of the Father. A lot of people try to say that, right? Well, well he knows even when the, pharaoh, the, the sparrow <laughs> falls. He knows when it happens. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say apart from your father knowing it. He says apart from your father, period. Meaning your father's sovereign control. Your father's providential power and rule over all things. He controls when the sparrow falls. He controls even the hairs of your head. Notice he goes on. He says, but even the hairs of your head are all Numbered. Your father knows all the hairs of your head. He knows all the sparrows. He tells, I mean, he, he's in control of it all. What comfort, right? Don't fear them. Fear your father. But your father is one who controls all the surroundings in your life. Your father controls everything. This is my father's world, we sing. And it's true. Yes, we talk about the prince of the power of the air. Yes, we talk about 
the, the, the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, but oh, over all of it, our Father rules with unrivaled sovereignty and control. He controls it all. R.C. Sproul was famous for talking about the fact that there's not one, not one maverick molecule in this world, in this universe. If there were, there would be no God. God would not be God, but he rules even over every single molecule, every single particle of dust, every single particle of virus that enters into your body. He's a ruler over it all. He says, don't fear man, fear God. He's in control. You're valuable. You are more valuable than these sparrows. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value, notice verse 31, than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me, it's literally who's confessing me before men, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. So he points them to two realities, right? Don't fear man because God's in control. And then don't fear man because one day I will confess you before my father. Excuse me. Can you imagine that day, believer? When Christ in all of his glory confesses you before his father. You who have done nothing but sin and despise his glory will one day be presented to the father by the son saying this is one of mine I purchased him I purchased her from the slave market of sin from the power of sin I ransomed them out of Egypt this world I ransomed them out of the kingdom of darkness and father they are mine that he throws out as, a, as an incentive to not ever ever deny him before men he who confesses me before men, who acknowledges me before men, will also be confessed by me by my Father, before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so they are to be mindful of the world that is hostile. They are to be mindful, like us, of the Father who is sovereign. And then thirdly, like them, we are to be mindful of the division that is inevitable. The division that is inevitable. Look at verses 34 to 39. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. We're told in that beautiful prophecy in Isaiah that he is the prince of peace. But he did not come to bring peace on the earth, to the earth. He came to bring peace to sinners who are united by faith to him, Right? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in terms of his overall mission, he didn't come to bring peace to the earth. What does he mean by that? Well, notice, he clarifies. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He came from heaven with a sword, and he draws that sword wields that sword, and he divides with that sword. He did it then. He did it in the past. He's doing it now, and he will continue to do it. He will continue to divide. Now, notice what he says. For I have 
come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, whenever he, by his grace, awakens a dead, spiritually dead daughter to behold and be satisfied with his glory, while the rest of the family wants nothing to do with its glory, there's going to be division. There is going to be division. It is inevitable. It, 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 it's, a, it's just a given. I think we think that if, if we get saved, that everything in our family life is going gonna, is gonna to be beautiful and well, and that's not the case. He says a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Thank God that there are families being raised and children being raised in the, in the ways of the Lord. But as we go forth from this place, we need to tell people and be honest with people as we're talking about the gospel of the kingdom that, hey, you might lose your family. And let me tell you something. There are people that are unwilling still to even consider Christ because they know it will bring division between them and their husband or them and their children. And they're willing to forfeit and walk away from endless joy in glory and in the new Jerusalem just to keep their spouse happy, just to keep their children happy, just to keep their friends happy. Christ came to this world to call sinners. Remember, we saw that last week. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners, came to call them to repentance. And as we are brought to repentance, try putting a repentant person in the same room for a long time with people who are unrepentant. It doesn't work. There's division. There's a sword. It's inevitable. It's to be expected. He goes further to talk about the family. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Here is a claim to deity. No mistake about it. One of the commandments, right? Honor your father and your mother and you will live long in the land, right? God in the flesh comes to this world and says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the same applies for every other relationship. If you love your husband more than Christ, you are not worthy of Christ. If you love your children more than Christ, you are not worthy of Christ. I mean, it goes all across the board. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, he's referring to literal death by crucifixion in that day. He's saying if you're not willing to bear your cross... Your, 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 your execution, for my sake, you're not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's the one thing we keep coming across in this? My sake, for my sake, for my sake. We're called to be wise. We're called to be pure for his sake. We're called to bear our crosses for his sake. It's all for him. And how often we make it about ourselves. How often we make the Christian life about ourselves and we, we lose our focus 
from looking to him and we look upon ourselves and we find ourselves completely undone, unraveled. It's all for his sake. The idea of losing your life for his sake is saying, my life is not my own anymore. It's for him. Whatever gifts, talents, skills, possessions I have, it, it all has to be for his service, for his kingdom. It doesn't mean you have to let go of everything. You should be willing to let go of any, everything if he calls you to, but to hold everything with an open hand to say, this is all for you. My life, my existence is for you. That's when you find your life. When you realize that your life is bound up with his life. As Colossians 3 says, you died, Christian. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're to be mindful of the world that is hostile. We're to be mindful of the Father who is sovereign. We're to be mindful of the division that is inevitable. And as we come to the end here, we are to be mindful of the reward that is promised. The reward that is promised. Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. This is the ultimate reward. We talk a lot about rewards. And we should talk a lot about rewards because the Bible talks a lot about rewards. There is a day coming when... Christians will be rewarded. That is humbling and exhilarating and exciting and sobering and a lot of other things. There is a day coming when God will reward his people. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. (laughs) Every single good thing we do in the Christian life is done by God's foreordaining and the Spirit working in us to will and work for His good pleasure. And then He rewards us for it. Isn't that fascinating? Does that ever blow your mind? That any faithfulness that you display for the sake of Christ, well, that's faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, according to Galatians. And then He rewards you for it. He rewards his own work in you. It's, it's, it's wonderful. He says in 41, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. It's interesting that the first step in receiving the gospel is receiving a messenger of the gospel. Right? You can't receive the gospel without receiving whoever's proclaiming that gospel to you. And what is the ultimate reward for receiving the gospel. It's eternal life. It's a reward. It's God himself. He is our reward. Like he told Abraham, I am your shield. I am your reward. I am your treasure. And 42, as we come to an end, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Even refreshing the hearts of the saints merits, deserves a reward in his eyes. We are to be mindful of the world that is hostile, the Father who is sovereign, the division that is inevitable, and the reward that is promised. 
Isn't it amazing that, again, we go forth from this place not with our own gospel, not with our own message, not with our own resources, and yet we go knowing that if anyone receives us, they're going to receive a reward. That should excite us when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. As you go forth this week, as you go to work, as you go to school, whatever you're doing this week, as you open your mouth to share the gospel, you're to have in the back of your mind that if this person receives you, that's the first step in receiving all that God has for them. And all that he has for them is all that he is. He is our reward. He is our greatest treasure. God is the gospel. He, 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 the, the good news is God. You get God. What do you get? You don't just get forgiveness. You don't just get justification and glorification and progressive sanctification and definitive sanctification. And you don't just get adoption. You get God. This, th- th- that's what you get at the end. You get God in whose presence is fullness of joy. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are yours and you, you, you are his. And we go forth from this place mindful that we, like the disciples, are sent as shepherds to lost sheep and we are sent as sheep among fierce wolves. And what do we need? We need the spirit of our Father. We need wisdom. We need purity. We need to focus on why we exist, and that's for his name's sake. Father, we thank you today for your word, which is it's water when we're thirsty. It's bread when we're hungry. It's a hammer when we're hard. It's seed when there's nothing. It's everything. And we thank you that it has the power to keep us satisfied and keep us pure. I pray that you would help us to understand and take to heart that we, like these disciples, though we don't have the title of apostle and don't have the power at our disposal to do some of the things that they did, that we, what we do have is a commission to go forth from this place to share the good news that is not our news, not from our power, not exhausted through our resources even. It's all you. And we go forth knowing that those who receive us will then receive a, a glorious reward. It's, it's Father, this is, this is all good news all around and we thank you for it. I pray that you would strengthen your, your people here this morning. Sanctify your people. May they walk in wisdom and knowing how to apply the knowledge that they have. May they walk and strive for purity of heart. For blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Father, help them. Help children to understand the gospel that, that, that we parents teach them. And unite our hearts, unite us to fear your name, and unite our hearts together to bear one another's burdens as we are told here we may lose earthly family and friends and so and, and, and so on but what we do have that's not immediately in this text is what we do have is, is a family in heaven and family here um, that is a heavenly family and so I pray that you'd help us to understand these things um, we love you and we thank you in Jesus name